I'm James Edmondson, and you're listening to Ono Radio. This is a branded podcast from Ono Type Company. You knew that already. Now, I usually spend the intro of this show talking about the guest and why I think they're awesome. And spoiler alert, I don't have people on the show that I don't think are great. But the format is tired. It's old hat. I don't need to constantly gush about my guests. Okay, so here's why I love Christian Schwartz. The guy was like a type design wonderkid, right? He was releasing type, not just designing type, releasing it at age 15. That's outrageous. So that's page one of this bio, okay? Where does he go from there? The banger of bangers, Neutraface. And he does that when he's 25. What was I doing when I was 25? Not jack shit, probably. Anyhow, Christian has release type, world-class stuff with every foundry known to man, pretty much. Won every award, worked with some very fancy clients. Honestly, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. All I care about is that when I see Christian, all he wants to talk about is how cute his kids are. Because he's a human being, okay? He's a very sweet man. He's always been extremely kind to me. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Christian Schwartz. You have been on both sides of that equation, just being like a hired gun, a solo freelancer, and then gradually over time, you know, coming out with this roster of like, amazing people that are doing work under the commercial umbrella. So what has it been like for you to transition into being a boss is one question. I mean, it, uh, it wasn't necessarily like a goal. I didn't set out to be like a foundry boss and have a bunch of people working for me and, and all of that. It was a very organic kind of evolution Um, and I don't know, from the outside, it might look calculated and like we had this master plan, but, Mm -hmm. uh, the whole thing's been very, um, haphazard. It's just sort of planning ahead for the next six months, year, you know, a couple years if possible, but not, um, Paul and I got thrown together initially by Mark Porter to work on the Guardian typeface together. And we Uh knew each other a little bit, but we hadn't worked together and we were not like regular collaborators. Mm -hmm. And we both thought, let's do this. And if it doesn't work, um, one of us can step away from the project. Mm -hmm. And if it does work, that'll be great. Mm -hmm. And uh, two years after that, we had this typeface that was coming out of exclusivity and it was kind of a turning point for us. Like either we have this big thing that we probably won't do a project that big again, that could be the foundation of a library mm-hmm. or we find the right home for it. And, and that's that. And we right. just release stuff wherever it feels logical. Uh-huh. And uh, so I went over to London and Paul and I hung out and talked about this for a week and tried to talk each other out of starting a foundry. <laughs> and at the end, it was the least bad option. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the vibe? Like, how did you guys get along and stuff for that? Hanging out with someone that I haven't met in real life before for a week straight sounds like a pretty big gamble. Oh, uh, we did that um, 
towards the, well, what seemed like it was going to be the middle of the Guardian project, but turned mm -hmm. out to be fairly early on. <laughs> that was supposed to be a four or five month project that ended up stretching out for two years. Uh -huh. But um, yeah, I went over to London. Paul and I had only talked on the phone. I had no idea what he looked like. Mm -hmm. And he picked me up at the airport with his two kids who were three and five at the time. Uh -huh. And uh, I went and stayed in their spare room. And that is where the desk was set up because they were doing some renovations on the house at the moment. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. uh, so I would wake up and, <laughs> and Paul would come down and we'd work in that room for hours. Uh -huh. And uh, he also took me around to give me like a crash course in British visual culture. So St. Bride oh. Library and grand buildings in Greenwich and uh, some different parts of London. His, uh, if you're ever in London, um, try to get him to take you on the, uh, the Edward Johnston walk. Uh-huh. Well, he's a charming guy. Like, I haven't talked to Paul that much in real life. Uh, but he came to our final thing in type media. And the thing that really stuck out in my memory was he was like lamenting the current lettering landscape of 2014 it was the year this happened. And he said, I don't know why this stuck out in my memory so much. Um, he said, a blind beggar from the 18th century could do better lettering than what I see getting uh, shown around and posted. <laughs> on. And I was like, how is this phrase of a blind beggar from the 18th century at just at the tip of your tongue, just ready to go? But he's super funny and super charming and just a, a sharp guy for sure. And that's so sweet that he was like taking you out and showing you around. Well, he, uh, and, and I think this is where commercial classics really comes from. So Paul lived in the U.S. for a few years and actually um, met his wife in New York, even though she is also uh, English and mm -hmm. uh, went to Reading and, and um, mm -hmm. they were both working in magazines here and met here, but um, moved back. And uh, he's talked about how spending time in the U.S. made him more aware of British aesthetics mm -hmm. and a particular Britishness in design. And it made him a lot more curious about his own roots when he got back. And uh, that's when he started spending a lot more time at the St. Pride Printing Library and really mm -hmm. getting into the 19th century type and, and delving deep into the history. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that balance between American and British... Um, aesthetics and sort of American European um, really benefits us a lot because we don't necessarily have the same assumptions about what looks normal. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And so I think that's helped us work with people from other places like Miel, who comes from a completely different visual culture in Mexico mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and trained in Europe um, in the Netherlands, worked in Spain yeah. Um, so we all kind of have learned how to find kind of a a shared vocabulary for aesthetic uh -huh. things. But I mean, yeah, that totally makes sense and is a very professional answer. But this is someone that you're like thinking about going into business with, 
and that is like a marriage. And so how do you, (laughs) how do you like figure out if this is socially going to work long time or was it more of a, I don't know. I kind of got a good vibe about this guy. He seems cool and I like him and I like hanging out with him and he's got great taste, et cetera. Uh, we, we worked together really intensely for those two years on the guardian project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, by the end of it, we still enjoyed each other's company and we still enjoyed working together. And, uh, I think what we, what we especially liked was that separately we each did one kind of work together. It was almost like a third designer. Uh huh. And so, um, we liked what it brought out in each of us. Mm-hmm. But also, like, we have a really similar sense of humor and uh, like a lot of the same music. And it was easy to get along. And mm-hmm. I think the distance also forced us to um, have a lot of conversations that we might have put off um, uh, if we were working in the same room. What do you mean? Because... Um, I think you can you can assume a lot of things about the other person if you're in the same room. Right. Sort of what their mood is and, and if they're cool with something. Yeah. But over the phone, you got to talk about it. Yeah. And so we, we really had to, it was, uh, I mean, the, the guardian project was hard at, mm-hmm. at times. We were almost like therapists to each other. Uh-huh. About just like the, <laughs> well, any client, uh, any client relationship, I think, could probably benefit from a therapist uh, in the room or some emotional support, for sure. Well, I don't know. Do you find that when you work with clients, um, therapist is part of your role? I mean, that's definitely <laughs> been my experience. I am so bad uh, working with clients. And every year, I think I'm going to start to get better. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm not super uh, a, a, a good therapist that it just tends to, I don't know, get away from me for whatever reason. But this is a major difference between us because you and Paul and everyone at, at commercial seem to thrive in the client relationship. Just one after another of these major magazines, you know, and, and different brands and doing excellent work, you know, meeting the brief, but also taking it somewhere really special too. It's not something I've been uh, able to handle especially well. That's why I'm, I'm interested in talking to people like you or Jeremy Mickle or whatever that just kind of seem to have it figured out in a different way. Well, I, I, I really appreciate, I mean, that, that's uh very kind to, to describe our, our work with clients that way. I think, um, yeah, I think we really thrive on it. I, I love the client relationships. I mean, not every time and not every project. Um, uh-huh. There have been some that um, I think if I worked solo, it would have been really hard and my husband just would have heard a lot of bullshit. Uh-huh. But um, since Paul and I can be each other's sounding boards for this stuff, and you know, as part of our job as part right. of the company, yeah, um, to, to for me to listen to Paul, um, just unload about difficult things with certain clients, and mm-hmm. and vice versa, and uh, I mean, at the studio as well, um, 
just venting. It's good mm-hmm. to have people to vent to. <laughs> that it helps so much because then you can sort of put yourself back together and then uh, go into the meeting with uh, <laughs> poise and composure. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I, I realized early on that a lot of a lot of dealing with clients is like therapy. It's just drawing people out and getting them to first they say what they think you want to hear from them. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've heard how you talk to a type designer and I'm going to try to do that. And then like getting to the core of what they actually want, even if mm-hmm. they don't want to say that's what they want, but it's what they really want. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, a matter of getting there. And there's just so much talking involved. Do you feel like you ever are actively trying to talk a client out of a custom typeface or something like that or, or working almost, with you? Almost every project, yeah. That's sort of our starting point. <laughs> Just be because, like, I mean, this, life, there's so many ways to short. not do this. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of life typefaces out there already. Really good typefaces. Typefaces yeah. that could fit what you're trying to do extremely well. And uh-huh. then, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a lot of what I'm talking about. Like, getting them past, like, if it's an ego thing. Right, or if right. it's just like, this is what I've heard you need to do. Everybody's commissioning typefaces now, so we uh-huh. want to commission our own. Um, you know, it can't be Helvetica. But it just needs to do all the things that Helvetica does. So when, when, that, when that comes up, because that's like the classic example of, for me, a, a red flag in, in these kind of meetings, if they're leaning it into something like, well, we basically want Helvetica, but it can't be Helvetica for ego reasons or whatever. Um, or licensing reasons. Right. I mean, that's the, right. that's totally. the most boring reason to commission a typeface, <laughs> but it's also, there's a certain practicality to it. Absolutely. And there's people that, you know, make a decent living off of kind of solving that problem for people and... Pff, Who's to say? And I'm glad uh, that works for them and it's not my job. (laughs) It doesn't sound fun to me either, but I just, I don't want to shit on anyone who's like making a career in type design work somehow, you know, I guess there's kind of. No, no, definitely. I mean, everybody, everybody finds sort of their niche. Right. That's, um, I think that's a, that's a really nice thing about this field. It seems so specialized and yet. Yeah, it's full of all these tiny little niches that right. that studios and and individual designers can fit into, mm-hmm. and um, I feel like the the only problem with these pro- projects is when they they go to somebody in the wrong niche that it's totally the wrong fit. Uh huh. Yeah. So when you're but arguing, yeah, we we, uh, we absolutely argue against commissioning something. Um, that that is our starting point with most projects. And then what's and their response? How do, you, how do you see that conversation play out? I mean, it's, it's different with each client, but um, kind of generally um, you, you either manage to get to, yeah, we just don't want to keep paying for this uh-huh. subscription uh-huh. we have to pay for every year. And right. so we say, well, does it have to be something new? Could it be one of these from our library or this from somebody else's library? Um, what other things are there that 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 could fit? And uh, a lot of the time, it does end up there. Mm-hmm. Or that's like the clarifying moment in the conversation where they say, well, we actually hate that. 
we love this, but this is why it doesn't work for us. Right, um, right. And here are sort of the mix of technical aesthetic and, and emotional reasons why, um, why we need something that's not any of these. And yeah. then we've got some place that we can start. I imagine if I was you in those conversations, having the library that commercial has of, I mean, all the commercial classic stuff, all the stuff that you've recently kind of made visible on the vault, which I want to get into in a second here, and then just all the normal commercial library, I think I would just be like, okay, look around, people. We got something in here that's going to solve <laughs> your problem or come pretty close. So do you want to just kind of like, I don't know, take a pick and, and license something? Or I don't know, does that thought ever cross your mind? Yeah, and and a lot of the a lot of the time that's where it ends up, uh, and we might like tweak the lowercase g in something because it right. wasn't. It's like, oh, that's really a deal breaker for us, and we're like, it's not a deal breaker. Let's just <laughs> fix that and be on our way. Uh, that is my favorite job ever. If I mean, I haven't been able to land it personally, but in my vision of like the sort of client work that would be ideal. It would be the customizations, right? That is, it just seems like so much less headache for everyone, less expense and everything. It is, but it also can become uh, a complicated dance with the client where what, what they mean? really want to hear from you is how much their ideas are improving this typeface and making it so much better than it was. Right, right. And so, yeah. um, you know, that's part of what they're actually paying you for is is that little ego that stroking. Yeah. Yeah. Do you so, indulge or do you not indulge? Uh, <laughs> to a point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's like you said, it's like being a therapist or it's like being a friend or it, there's such a, a social counterpart to it. And I know you to be nothing if not a nice guy. So, of course, <laughs> this is going to, to come up. And, and yeah, you don't, you don't want to be an asshole in those meetings. I just can't really imagine that coming out of you. Um, okay, I brought it up briefly, but I want to talk about the vault a little bit. And I was very surprised in the email leading into this meeting that uh, you mentioned how you wanted to start an OnlyFans for commercial that, type. That was, that was the original um, place where the, the idea for the vault came from. Because we've been doing these typefaces mainly with Interview Magazine. Uh-huh. Um, like Proxy, which was originally for... Um, Love which it, had to be one way. of the final window displays at Barney's before uh-huh. that like icon of New York shopping... Uh-huh. Uh, disappeared, and uh, then it was an interview, and I, I've started to feel really overwhelmed by how much shit you have to do to release a typeface now. Yeah, you've got to tell the story, you've got to have all the specimens, you've got to have images. Um, it's just like more and more and more stuff, uh-huh. and I don't think there's been like a conscious arms race between everybody to like pile more and more stuff on it just sort of happened uh-huh. and um i was just having a hard time imagining us doing this whole song and dance for a typeface like proxy 
and also giving it like the full character set that a commercial type release um, is expected to have. And yep. it was just a lot of stuff that put this silly typeface like pretty far out in the future in terms right. of when we could just get it in people's hands. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I feel like type is in many ways a fashion business. Mm -hmm. And if you're off with your timing, then what something that would have been relevant in one moment is no longer relevant in the same way that it would be. Absolutely. And so I was like, what should we do about these weird, like partial things? Mm -hmm. um, and, and I noticed that even with uh, our designers like Greg, he didn't want to do like a little family because it was so much work to release something, he would get super ambitious. So right. Teresa was going to be this um, relatively small text face, and now it's three families and this whole really interesting conceptual thing. But that, uh -huh. you know, again, it's a lot of story to tell and a lot of, like... A lot stuff. of specimens to make. <laughs> yeah. So I was uh, talking to a friend, and I was like, you know, I, I really want to put Proxy out, but it, we can't... It's too much to put it up on our site. We should just start an OnlyFans and have that like direct relationship with people who are interested in us. And it'll be a really small group of people, but that's fine. Uh, and I actually looked into it semi-seriously. I read up on their white papers of like what file types you can have and fonts were not there. And I was like, oh, that's a that is a big commitment if we like talk them into adding the agreement. Or even like rework some of the back-end vending software <laughs> to, like, uh -huh. send OTFs. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, but the biggest stumbling block for me, honestly, was that you couldn't change the color of the page. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, customize the look of it in any way. And it's like, there's kind of no way to, like, meet this halfway and be kind of on-brand, kind of not. It uh -huh. would just be that and... Um, yeah, so it was those two things that, like, it was such a big commitment to make them add OTFs. <laughs> <laughs> Which they probably would have done. I mean, Yeah, but then if we do a couple and then we're like, oh, this is not for us, then we're the assholes who made them, like, do all this extra work. So, so uh, it's funny, Greg and I had, like, a 20-minute Slack conversation about, all right, if the OnlyFans thing is not going to work, like, what, what would we want this thing to be? Like, uh -huh. what's a really informal way to get... A mix of work in progress, um, stuff that doesn't have all the essays and 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 specimens and all of that stuff that is otherwise done, mm -hmm. and just like weird shit that we like but um, doesn't necessarily fit the library. Yeah, what's a good way to get this combination of stuff out there? And so um, it was like the fastest thing we've ever done from the initial conversation to really? the launch, which felt really refreshing. So I, I mean, looking at the site, you have to log in. There's this nice little grid of things. Browsing through the different specimens and stuff in there, I was like, oh, wow, they're really smart to make it really easy to add a typeface to the vault. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's not a whole lot of back-end stuff, I imagine, that you have to do besides a description, a couple of images, and, and the OTFs. But um, it still is an undertaking to get the site out there. But yeah. you said it was super fast. Yeah, we worked with uh, Graybits, who built our both both versions of our main site mm -hmm. and classics, and uh, 
we know Brana and his team really well. And, um, yeah, they, they um, designed and built it. I think it was, like, eight months from, from the initial should we do a thing to opening the Damn. doors. Damn. That's, that's really cool. I love to see a company, like, just going <laughs> all in on an idea like that. And, uh, I mean, sales haven't been great, but we also haven't really promoted it at all because we're, um, we're still figuring out kind of what, what it's for and what people want from it. And so it's kind of a, a real-time experiment. Well, I think if the goal was purely financial, it probably wouldn't have ended up the way that it did, right? It would have taken a very different form, yes. <laughs> like, it's kind of like, I don't know, a little... Uh, testing area that's kind of I don't know if you wanted to make money crank out a, a, a new geo grotesque or, or something like that <laughs> and and see how that does uh, but if this is it just seems like the goal is to kind of have fun releasing type you know which is the reason we're all here in the first place and something that you've done a lot of in your life i mean it's also that these things do no good sitting on somebody's hard drive right right totally so let's just get them in people's hands and if that's three people then i mean at least it's getting used somewhere so the reason to not just like jump on board a future fonts or something like that would be what? Because you're still kind of in this continuous like marketing push with all the different releases? Um, I think we really liked what Future Fonts was doing, and that was definitely, um, after OnlyFans, that was our next thought. Like, maybe we should put this stuff on, on Future Fonts. First OnlyFans, then Future Fonts. Second then, Future okay. Fonts. Yeah. And uh, what we realized was that a lot of this stuff was not really in the spirit of Future Fonts. Because uh -huh. Future Fonts, like, ostensibly, all of those typefaces are on their way to getting finished. Right. And to use Future Fonts as a dumping ground for a bunch of stuff that we're honestly not going to finish any more than it already is <laughs> felt like it went really against the spirit of what future fonts is about right that's interesting that community is a community it's not a dumping ground for uh -huh. um a, an independent a, but large independent foundry i think a lot of these sort of um i mean you're not the only foundry with something like this um uh, as part of their kind of offerings, there's um, like a, a no, lab. type supply type supply has that production type has the lab. Uh -huh. um, Swiss typefaces has a lab as well. I think I don't yeah. know. There's, there's a couple of these other things floating around, but the degree to which they emphasize the importance that these are continual works in progress is totally flexible. Personally, I really love the idea that, they're just going up and there is no commitment to work on it further. Cause honestly, as a future fonts, uh, foundry participant, um, I, I loved kind of seeing how much interest there was and it dictated how complete the, um, typeface became. But for yeah. my projects that have no interest, like do not sell at all on future fonts, 
first of all, it's kind of embarrassing because it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of have to face that in public that nobody wants this thing that I thought was cool at one point or cool enough to work on it for a little while. But it's actually really nice to, to know, you know, what's worth the effort. But each new version on future fonts is another marketing push where you're generating the specimens again and yep. updating the character sets again and making a new PDF again and putting it out and posting about it and all this stuff. So it's a grind for sure to do that over and over. And I, if, if we were participating in that, I would feel compelled to participate fully, not uh -huh. just put stuff up and, and abandon it, but um, yeah, try to go with the spirit of the place. Yeah. And I think there's probably an opportunity to do a sort of white label future fonts product. First of all, something that uh, maybe anyone could release uh, anything that they're working on in versions. If it's a video game or a font or Photoshop templates or, or whatever, they could put things out and, and update it later and have it be something that is branded with their logo and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I think the, then, the thing I really admire about future fonts and what, what I've, what felt like a shift that um, I think they're really the, the biggest people behind is this idea of putting stuff out that's not done, that uh -huh. will be updated and uh, sort of working on stuff in a very public way and not just keeping it close to the chest until it's ready to come out. Mm -hmm. And that, that feels sort of revolutionary in a way. Mm -hmm. Putting um, out the demos before the album is, that's a, a brave and interesting way to work. Right. The other uh, music analogy I think about is I talk a lot uh, with this stuff um, with Jack from Wolfpack, which is a band I'm obsessed with, and they're our theme show music and everything. But he said that releasing the album all in one go is just like it's just immediately dead or it has like a week of excitement and then nothing so what he gradually started doing was just like one song at a time just like every month so an album release happens over like a year now just yeah. as a way to remain part of the conversation and always have something new kind of coming out I don't think there's really an easy way to do that with fonts. It's not like you can just put out one style at a time and, and see if people are going to find that useful. But no. there, should, <laughs> there should be a way of uh, maintaining interest in your foundry independent of major releases. And so maybe that's what this becomes. And, and I think major releases are still important because there are typefaces that are worth all of that right. sort of marketing structure that goes around it where there's an interesting idea or there's a story or there's something bigger that you can mm -hmm. hang on it. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, this is really just a, a acceptance that that's not always the case. Uh-huh. What's the most fun you've had releasing type? I mean, from a kid, like truly a kid, you were designing <laughs> type. <laughs> you were, I don't know, how old were you when you I, were kind of I was, had, had your uh, first like 15 major when I put out my first 
crappy font. I'm sorry, the internet cut out for a second right there. Sorry, I was 15 when I put out my first crappy font to <laughs> Font House, which um, was a major reseller, um, also publisher um, uh-huh. in, in the 90s. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, I don't know what my expectations were. It was sort of, there was so much excitement at the idea that it would be like in a catalog or it would be right. in an ad right. somewhere. Uh-huh. And um, I mean, it didn't really, nobody really bought it. I'm trying to think if I ever saw it used in the wild um, by somebody other than the sign shop that I worked at in my high school <laughs> job. <laughs> yes. But um, that was that was exciting and fun and... Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think, what was the most fun? I mean, the most fun was really the initial launch of commercial type. Yeah. With this, like, scary, is this going to work? Is anybody uh-huh. going to care? Uh-huh. Um, very much like, we've, we've, we've laid it all on the table. These are, these are our ideas. This is what we care about. This is, these are our priorities. Um, here, here it is. Was commercial type a success out of the gate? Uh, that's a funny thing. There was some pent up demand, but, uh, the first month was good. Uh-huh. And then the second month we released Publico and then it went dead really? for a full month. We got like two sales through the website in that Ooh. next month. Oh, and we thought, oh shit, <laughs> I right. guess, I guess we used up all of our demand and uh-huh. we keep the site up because like <laughs> it's already done. But uh-huh. um, I guess we'll be depending on finding custom projects to, to keep us alive um, probably forever. Uh-huh. And then it, it slowly started to, to go up from there. And um, I think we've, we've found a way to have fairly sustainable sales and, and just not, not a huge rise and fall or a, a peak and a crash, but... Uh-huh. We've tried to just keep it steady. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the most part, that, that has seemed to work. But, I mean, when you're, when you're a small foundry, and I know we have a big library, but I still think of us as small. Um, yeah. You can still have those one or two licenses that totally change your whole year. Yep, for sure. And, uh, you know, all these years into it, that's still very much the case for us. Something you do that is somewhat unusual. Um, I don't know, actually, how, how unusual it is, but crediting the individual designers on any given project is something that you do a pretty good job of on the commercial website. So where did that come from? And uh, who is a, a person that you're typically working with? Like, is everyone an employee or, or how much do you um, work with contractors and stuff? Uh, we, we have a pretty uh, big stable of contractors, um, both like uh, multilingual specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ilya and his team at, at Custom Fonts, um, they'll, they'll work on Cyrillic. Mostly Ilya, though. Ilya and I have known each other forever, and uh, uh-huh. we really like working together. Fun. Guy. He's a fun guy. <laughs> Ilya's great. Yeah. 
and then, yeah, giving credit on your website. Can you talk about that? Um, I mean, that just seems like the thing you do. I don't know. It, it never occurred to me not to. Well, um, for and, sure. And working, working with Eric Spiekerman, he was also really good about that. So uh -huh. he also made it seem normal. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I think the last time he drew a typeface completely by himself was for Bertold in the late 70s. <laughs> and he's had collaborators on all of his typefaces since. Meta, uh -huh. Officina, um, up to what he's doing now. And uh -huh. he always put the other person front and center. Right, which is a, a very cool thing to do that can be a kind of game-changing thing for that person at a different yeah, stage. Yeah, you can career. really help a young designer get their name out there and, and put themselves on the map. Um, but it also just it feels like morally the right thing to do. I mean, somebody's putting so much work into this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they're getting paid, but also it's uh their contribution should be noted and valued i think what do you think about the um how much can a foundry or or anyone kind of participating in type design do it as a purely financial or, or business venture and how much has to be genuine enthusiasm for the craft like it just seems like uh, any kind of given customer or potential client really has a pretty good bullshit detector about kind of who's in this business legitimately. I don't know. Does that make any sense to you? Well, I think there's also clients who like sort of look for the, the smoke and mirrors and the bullshit because right. that, that aligns with their own... <laughs> Approach and values. So, um, yeah, we're kind of back to the niches. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot of drudgery, and it's a lot of, there's a, making type is a slog. But you're and still, so if there you're weren't, still if there doing weren't, it. If there weren't those moments of joy in it, it just wouldn't right. be worth it. Right. And right. so, you know, that moment where you, you set a page in the typeface you're working on and it's not just a bunch of mistakes, but it started to gel and it's like, okay, this is looking like a typeface now. Uh -huh, uh -huh. That moment has not gotten old. And uh -huh. um, honestly, still going to the newsstand around the corner and seeing um, our stuff used in magazines, uh -huh. um, I still get something out of that. That's amazing. I After say. all these years, it's, it's great to... Just to know that we're we're all the work that we put in is is being used somewhere mm -hmm. by somebody and helping them do what they want to do, mm -hmm. and making um, making things look a very particular way. And um, I mean, it, it sounds uh, a little I don't know lofty or a little egotistical, but I I love the idea that we are leaving fingerprints on what things look like right now, and helping to define just what the current time that we're living in and, and making stuff in what it looks like. That's really super exciting to me. Yeah. I think, you know, you talked about type being like fashion or, or being a fashion like industry. And I think fashion drives a lot of the stuff that's happening in graphic design and it'll trickle down to graphic design after whatever couple years or something like that. 
Um, but I also think that type design can be something that is a culture driver in the first place as much as fashion or as much as music can too, you know? Like it doesn't just have to be something that's been passed down to type design. Yeah, it's not just uh, a reaction. I right. think um, sometimes there's the right typeface in the right moment. I mean, think about all the stuff that LeBalin and his peers were doing in the 70s mm -hmm. in, in New York in advertising. Mm -hmm. I mean, define the look of an era. Yeah, totally, totally. And then you compare what they were doing to bell bottoms or really long sideburns or like those butterfly collars and stuff like that. And it's like, it all kind of makes or sense. Like Houston, Houston gowns, it's sort of that same <laughs> shape. Uh <-huh>. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, all, it's just kind of what's in the air at a particular moment. And that actually, um, I just got the new book on Ed Fella's work oh. that I think Unit Editions did. Uh-huh. And flipping through it, it's sort of roughly in chronological order. And the most amazing thing to me that, that I'm really finding striking about it is that his style and his approach is consistent throughout. And you can see the Ed Felliness of all of this work all the way back to the very beginning. But you can also tell exactly what era things are made in. Right, right. I mean, he yeah, wasn't working in a cool. vacuum. It was still like... Oh yeah, that's the early '80s. Mm -hmm. Oh wow, there's the there's the late '60s, and here's mm -hmm. all the things that go with that, and the prevailing fashion in fashion and art and design and everything. But there's sort of how that intersects with Ed Fellow's approach and his aesthetic. Do you see that and in your so, own work going back over the last thirty years? Uh, God, the last thirty years. Um, yeah, I think so, definitely. Tell me about like tight typefaces with large X heights. Why is this something that you uh, gravitate towards? Uh, probably because I was born in 1977, <laughs> and so my formative years of like learning to read and seeing words on stuff uh -huh. uh, coincides with peak uh, ITC. That's so funny. So I like ITC. Garamond, ITC, Cheltenham, like all those ITC faces, many of them uh -huh. sort of reinventing the classics and always with a big X height. Mm -hmm. So that was just totally ingrained in me. And, yeah. um, but I don't, I don't feel like it's a nostalgic thing. It's just sort of, I it, it unconsciously gravitate towards it. Um, but also wanted... working, working with a lot of newspapers, I mean, a big X height is sort of the first thing you do to make a newspaper text based legible. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I really admire looking through your website when it has the section to like click on the previous version of this website. I'm like, oh, okay, what's over there? This is something I've done years ago before I ever knew you. And, um, and then there's a section called like unfinished work. And then there's like a section called like super old unfinished work or whatever. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, now we're getting into the really good stuff here. And I want to encourage, first of all, all the listeners of this podcast to go find that section <laughs> of your website because there are some real gems in there. But I just want to highlight one called boy band. <laughs> You would not believe how many jobs boy band has gotten me. Oh, tell me all about it. Um, Esquire, 
the first time I worked with Esquire magazine, um, they'd sent me an email, set up a meeting. I went in and they had that boy band sample printed out on the wall. And they were like, we want to talk about this. This is really interesting. <laughs> like, what? What is going on? Yes. Well, <laughs> that, I... of all things, I've just done these like serious newspaper typefaces and and that's the thing you want to talk about. All right, that's this is going to be fun. But the con- the concept of it is that every boy band consists of the bad boy and the sweet There's one the... or what cute one or whatever yeah. and then the one who can actually sing and then whatever. So that you are going to put that idea into a typeface family somehow, even going so far as to dotting the eyes with hearts. <laughs> I was only on one of them. That was the heartthrob. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, so that's actually something I've done in a legitimate <laughs> Oh No release. <laughs> of course. So I was like, oh, of course he took this idea so, so early, decades before me. <laughs> But I love that boy band got you, uh, got you jobs. And then something else where you were like, well, I wanted to see what happened on this one if the serifs got curly. And you can tell that it doesn't work at all. Like, but no, here it is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think, um, I think as, as, uh, as you put yourself out there as a young designer, it's easy to be very insecure and kind of like, want to hide all your mistakes and present yourself as this, like, perfect surface. <laughs> right, 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 right. And uh, I just figured the cracks would always show anyway. So yeah. <laughs> put all the early stuff out there, and maybe a young designer will see it and think, all right, you can start by making some really terrible, dumb stuff and then go somewhere with it. Dude, that and is... Just de- and, and develop. <laughs> that is... Everybody starts somewhere. Exactly, exactly what I uh, I took from it. But beyond just like, I don't know, being an inexperienced designer, um, you see enthusiasm for it, you know? And when you, when you have all of your unfinished product, uh, projects just like one after another, it's like you just can feel the drive to create something new and I'm going to try this one. That one didn't work. I'm going to try five more. All those kind of came out okay a little bit better. <laughs> I'm going to do five more. You know, I love it. I I'm sometimes get a little freaked out about like, man, I'm at a point where I'm unhirable. I can't go get a job anywhere. You know, my skill set is way too specific for, um, for anything else. So I have no backup plan. What happens if I fall out of love with type design? You know, like what's going to happen to my livelihood if I lose the enthusiasm for it? But then I see people like you and your body of work and I'm like, well, maybe it just won't. Maybe I just won't lose the enthusiasm for it. I mean, there's it, it does kind of come and go, though, doesn't it? I mean, nobody's totally enthusiastic every day. <laughs> every, everything comes in waves, for sure. But the fact that, I don't know. Like, I asked Mark Simonson this question. Why aren't you on a beach somewhere sipping Mai Tais all day long? You know, why, why not just chill out and retire? You still want to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I mean, there's still a lot of stuff. There's ideas percolating that I'm dying to see what they'll look like if I make them, and I just uh-huh. need to find the time. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, after, especially after my first daughter was born, um, I went through a year of thinking, I might not be good at this anymore. I might not have any ideas anymore. And I was really just sleep deprived and like, going through a major <laughs> life adjustment. And, uh, I mean, fortunately I have the, the business to fall back on. I mean, I've right. still got to look at proofs for people and, and do like payroll and, and all the like day to day business stuff. So that was at least enough to keep me busy, uh-huh. um, and not feel like I needed to find another career. But, um, yeah, I did feel like, like maybe, maybe my time is done and I've just got to move on to the phase of only being the boss and not making stuff anymore. Because when I sit down, it's like I've forgotten how to make outlines or make shapes look good together anymore. Did you feel like you got rusty? Um, I definitely got rusty. Um, and I also like, it takes so much concentrated, so much concentration to make a typeface that's cohesive at all (laughs) right well i think what it takes is long periods of uninterrupted time and new parents have no shot at that yeah that's the opposite of having a baby (laughs) right right exactly so you have a couple of kids now has that changed other parts of your creative life or have you kind of just like snapped back into kind of what it was before? No, it's funny. There, there's a lot less dicking around in general, Yeah, but there's sort of time that's now sort of devoted specifically to dicking around, uh-huh. <laughs> if that makes sense. Like dicking so around stuff as needs... a form of self-care? Uh, I guess so, yeah. And, yeah. um... Yeah, the uh, I've gotten much better at like dipping in and out of a project, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where I now can jump in and and work on something for twenty minutes if that's how much time I have, and it doesn't take forty minutes to kind of get up to speed and see what I was doing, and mm-hmm. um, that that ability to turn focus off and on. Um, I don't know if you've had a similar experience. Uh, a, a thoughtful consideration of dicking around time um, has been my main takeaway, probably. <laughs> but it, it's weird because in one way, it's like, okay, this week, no dicking around. And then other times I'm like, oh, my God, I need to get in my shop and go build something and do something that yeah. is not parenting and not type design. And luckily, you know, I have my own business and I can kind of take time off when, like, my mood dictates it, uh, yep. which is an amazing thing. Uh, and for people, I mean, for people with normal jobs and kids, I don't know how anyone does it at all like that just seems i mean maybe you can just turn it off and turn it on and that that must be it right isn't that the coping mechanism (laughs) just like 40 hours a week like i don't know if i was gone at 7 a.m every day and came home at six or whatever say i had like a demanding job and just kind of like saw my kids for bedtime or something that's very normal to a lot of people i'm sure but it sounds so hard or just like yeah. such yeah. a bummer. 
I don't know. How do you split your time now, uh, work and parenting? Kind of a generic question there, but. Uh, it's, um, I try to get sort of the email stuff done during the day and then the stuff where I really need concentration after the kids go to bed. So I don't get a lot of sleep now. So I do another shift when I can scrape together the energy from like 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And then I'm up at 7.30 to to be up with the kids and make breakfast for the little one, get the bigger one off to school. And then um, I I have an enforced break every day at... 2.10 or 2.15 because I have to go for uh, pre-K pickup. <laughs> Dude, you are not getting anywhere near enough sleep right now. I'm not. I'm oh not. But, um, but the little one's starting preschool soon, and there's going to be... I, I know it's just a, a period of time that I need to survive not having enough sleep. And <laughs> later on, things will settle into a healthier routine and it's just the just the unavoidable early childhood years that's that's insane man um but it's not it's not great but i i don't know i wouldn't trade it right you're not gonna get this time back kids aren't ever gonna be this age again for sure and so with, with the pandemic, I mean, it's been really hard trying to work at home and have the kids here. And, and my husband's working at home, too, and he's mm-hmm. an epidemiologist, so he's on a lot more calls than I am. And uh-huh. uh, his work feels uh, a little more crucial than mine. <laughs> but um... <laughs> the type design? No way. Epidemiologist, get out of here. <laughs> but, um, you know... It, it's been a lot harder on him, but he hasn't had to commute to the Bronx. He had like an hour and 20 minute commute each way. And uh-huh. he hasn't really been uh-huh. doing that. He goes in like every few weeks for a day. And uh, so we've, we've gotten to be around the kids while they're this young so much more than we would have otherwise. And so it's, uh, it's really hard. And a lot of it has just sucked with trying to get stuff done and just feel like a person. But, um, yeah, still trying to make the time with the kids into quality time is uh, just put the effort into that. Well, on that note, on that note, I won't take up too much more of your time and uh, let you get back to whatever you got going on. You're probably going to be doing the pickup here pretty soon, but I want to yeah, thank you so go, much. Go for pickup and get a cup of coffee. <laughs> Yeah, maybe a double. Uh, I thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to me. And, you know, you're a huge mentor of mine and have been probably a lot longer than you realize. But um, it means a lot to me to have people like you in the field that are kind of, you know, honestly, just setting like a gold standard for what it looks like to have an independent foundry these days. So um, I've always been super inspired by you and to also know that you're a nice guy and a good dad um, is actually a prerequisite for, for me. So uh, yeah, thank you so much, Christian.
Well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, you know, the, um, I'm, I'm a fan of yours also. Um, I love what you're doing and, and the fact that, I mean, it really feels like you're, you're following your interests and doing things on your terms and, and not trying to have somebody else's foundry. You're having the foundry that only you could do, and uh, I really admire that. Right on. Thanks, man. Can you believe how sweet that guy is? It's amazing to me. I want to thank Christian for coming on the podcast. Commercialtype.com, commercialclassics.com, fault.commercialtype.com, instagram.com slash commercialtype. I could go all day, okay? Please, if you haven't checked out their fonts, which I kind of doubt, um, definitely look into that. And thank you so much for listening. Music on the show is provided by Volpec, the world's funkiest rhythm section. If you're looking for some of our fonts, you can do so at onotype.co. And that's it. Much love and respect always. Sincerely, James. <laughs>